Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. Hope you're staying safe and sane. Tonight we'll hear two more nominees for the 2019 Bram Stoker Awards. But before we dive into the stories, I've got some good news for anyone eager to hear who will take home the hardware for this year's awards. Despite StokerCon being postponed, the Horror Writers Association will be continuing with the awards presentation as scheduled, only virtually. If you'd like to check it out, tune in to the Horror Writers Association YouTube channel on April 18th. They'll be hosting the awards live starting at 8pm Eastern Time. But if you want a little warm-up to the main event, they'll also be featuring readings from nominated writers throughout the day on that same YouTube channel. Keep an eye out on the official Horror Writers Association social channels for updates and more details as we get closer to the event. But for tonight, we've got a second round of nominated stories to share with you. The first of our Bram Stoker Award-nominated stories this evening comes from Gwendolyn Keist. Gwendolyn Keist is a horror and fantasy writer based in Pennsylvania. Her fiction has appeared in anthologies including Strangely Funny 2 and Whispers from the Past, Fright and Fear, as well as online at The Siren's Call, Dance Macabre, 
and Sanitarium Magazine, among others. You can find her at GwendolynKeist.com and on Twitter at Gwendolyn Keist. Children of the Night, join me for Gwendolyn Keist's The Eight People Who Murdered Me, excerpt from Lucy Westenra's Diary, first published in Nightmare Magazine, November 2019. One. You. The teeth in the neck gambit obviously starts all of this. Don't think I'll forget that. Don't expect for one moment you're going to get off too easily. You might not be the only one to blame, but you're still mostly to blame. For how you came to me when I'm by myself. A lonely girl in a goblin market where some treasures are best left undiscovered. Tonight my mother's hosting another soiree. All in my honor. A way to find me the perfect husband. She doesn't care what I have to say about it. Nobody cares what I say. So without a word, I slip out the back door and take an evening stroll through the city. Past the downtown train station with its melancholy whistles and along cobblestone streets with vendors that keep strange hours. What do you seek, pretty girl? They ask. Their lips curled up in grotesque smiles, each of them proffering me trinkets meant to solve problems I don't have. My nervous hands clasped in front of me, I turn away, and that's when I see you. There at the corner, emerging beneath a gaslight. Your voice, a sweet melody that could pied piper all the children of London to their unmarked graves. Good evening, Miss Lucy, you whisper, and my skin hums in refrain. I never ask how you know me. It should be my first question, but you don't look like a question to me. You look like an answer. An escape from the everyday. The humdrum of parlors and suitors. And a future where I'll surrender my name and freedom in exchange for a title. Mrs. Mother. Nothing more. But you pretend to offer another way. In an instant, we're together, perched side by side on an iron park bench. And you share everything about yourself. Where you came from, how you traveled aboard a ship named after Persephone's mother, a woman who knew loss so intimately. Your gaze speaks to me of loss, too. It feels as though you already know me, 
that we've met like this a thousand times before. So I lean in and whisper my secrets in your ear. How I'm desperate for something more. Something you promise me without ever speaking a word. You might be a stranger, but it seems safer to share these things with you than with my own best friend. As the moon slips across the sky, you guide me to my feet, and we sway together, dancing to music no one else can hear. Don't let me go, I say, and you smile, because you'll oblige, just not quite the way I expect. Your breath sweet as marzipan, you embrace me, one hand on my shoulder and the other on the small of my back. We're so close I can barely breathe. Then all at once I can't breathe or move or even scream. When you finish with me and I return home, my head heavy and vision blurred, the party is long over and the house has gone quiet. In my own bedroom, nothing looks familiar. Not the faded floral wallpaper, or the vanity arrayed with candlesticks, or the canopy beds. One that's mine and the other with Mina curled up in the dark. Are you awake? I ask, my voice splitting in two, blood on my hands. Blood that's all my own, but she's already fast asleep, and it isn't worth waking her now, even if I could form the words to tell her what you've done to me. Two. My mother. She could have warned me. She could have stitched crosses into all my corsets and brewed me vervain tea until my blood was brimming with it, and you wouldn't have wanted me. Better yet... She could have taken my hand, and I would have taken Mina's, and we could have run together, further than the edge of town, further than the Carpathian Mountains, to somewhere no man would be brave enough to follow. But that isn't what she did. It isn't what any of our mothers have done. This is the world they inherited and it's the one we'll get, too. Perhaps we shouldn't expect anything more. My father, with his bulging bank account and dirty fingernails, is below mention. Sometimes men can be far crueler than monsters. Three. My best friend. Mina. Sweet Mina. A light of all lights. Even if my mother wouldn't have come with us, we still could have fled this city of death. That was what we always wanted. Shall we run away together today? I'd ask, back when we were just girls who didn't know enough to know we should be afraid. Tomorrow, she would whisper, and we'd laugh and dance together in the garden maze, our fingers entwined, fresh blooms of wisteria woven through our hair. For years I believed tomorrow would come, but today has come instead. The morning when Mina can see the gray glint in my eye. 
this unwitting change stirring within me, all thanks to what you've done. Now she only shakes her head. We're not children anymore, Lucy, she says, and I suppose this means we can no longer dream. That night I latched the bedroom window, but that won't be enough to stop you. Though I never invite you in, you're everywhere now. Your shadow is weightless and oppressive as the August heat. Hello, my love. You whisper in the dark, your voice soft and sweet, yet still strong enough to drown out the gentle thrum of my own heartbeat. You don't ask me what I want. You can't be bothered to care about that. In your cold arms, my head lolls back, and through the open window, I listen to the mournful train whistle downtown as passengers in fine red silks and gray flourished top hats come and go, departing and returning from places I'll never know. I could take you wherever you'd like to go, you say, wetting your lips, and though I want to believe you, I already know the truth, even if it's too late now to matter. In the next bed, Mina sleeps her dreamless sleep, and as you press your mouth against my throat, I reach out for her across the gloom, but she might as well be a thousand miles away. Mina isn't like me. She wouldn't go walking at midnight, and she would never have listened to your lies. That's why she'll survive. Proper young ladies like her always do. They learn from my example how not to die. Even as I write these words, I know this isn't really her fault. She's only done what's expected. Shed her hopes. Shed her name. Chose a husband. There are worse sins. There are your sins. Four. My fiancé. I have to choose someone, too. That's the rule. My mother holds more parties in my honor, and the men descend, vultures that they are, squeezing into every corner of the parlor, each of them on bended knee as though they're at my mercy and not the other way around. Pick me, Miss Lucy. Their voices echo through the house, following me no matter where I hide. Nobody notices that my skin has gone pale. My eyes receded, and that perhaps I'm more in need of a passable doctor than an eligible bachelor. No more! I want to say. But they wear me down and wear me thin until I close my eyes, spin in a circle, and say yes to the first one I see. He isn't the worst of them. This so-called honorable lord might even be better than most, because he's so ordinary, blander than yesterday's porridge, and part of me hopes that means he won't make unreasonable demands. Maybe with him I won't have to fear a belt or a fist, or a calloused hand that will hold me down until I scream, until I learn that screaming will do no good.
until I've gone as mute as the dead. Choosing him is supposed to keep me safe. At the moment he slips the ring on my finger, it feels like a gold-shaped prison. My dreams are fading away, as ethereal as the fog that brought you here. Before bed, I lock the window again, and this time you don't return. You've moved on to your next conquest. I hope that means that I'm safe now, that the worst is over. But while I'm asleep, Mina vanishes as well, departing for her own matrimonial funeral. She leaves a note on my vanity. Good luck, my Lucy. As though all the luck in England could ever rescue us from this. I sleepwalk through the next afternoon, hollowed out and aching, never hearing any of my mother's eager wedding plans or my fiancé's pointless promises. Outside, the wisteria is blooming in the garden, but its scent dissolves in the air, lost to me in the same way that I've lost everything else. After midnight, I crawl out of bed and across the room, a leaden weight in my belly. Striking the last match, I light the candlesticks and read Mina's letter for the hundredth time, as though I'll discover some secret code. Only nothing's there but the same four words, empty as before. My chest twisted and heavy. I glance up at myself in the vanity, and everything in me goes numb. I'm barely there. I'm barely anywhere. A thin scream lodges in my throat, as right in front of my eyes my reflection is abandoning me. And it isn't doing the decent thing and disappearing all at once. Instead, I sit here at the mirror, grief seeping through my heart, and I watch myself disintegrate slowly. Hour by hour, I become less of me, my features going gray and translucent. By morning, I won't exist. This body will remain, but I will not. I'll be easy to forget, too. A footnote in a story that's not my own. When it's almost dawn and I'm almost gone, I exhale another scream. Louder this time. And though you can't be bothered to hear me, wherever you are, I manage to wake the rest of the house. Lucy? My mother's footsteps patter down the hall, but I don't answer her. This can't be real. This can't be how I end. My hands unsteady, I lift the pair of burning candlesticks and pitch the fire at what remains of my own reflection. It does no good. Nothing will save me now. With the candles limp on the floor, their flames sear through the rug, and I back into the corner, breathless. When my mother finally forces open my door, she cries out at the sight of me, of what I'm becoming. Then she barricades my bedroom and calls in someone to help. That's when the worst of them arrive. Five.
the out-of-town doctor. I awaken in the morning to a man with a heavy leather bag and heavier words. His voice booming up and down the stairs, ricocheting like a silver bullet off the yellowed wallpaper. Anemia, he declares in the first of his lies, and sheds his fur-collared coat on the floor. We'll fix that. I never catch his name, because he only ever speaks over and around me, never to me. There's no reason to expect anything better. A scientist in a lab wouldn't introduce himself to the frog pickled in formaldehyde, so why should this famed doctor bother to say hello to the wan girl restrained on the canopy bed? I'm worse than a specimen in a jar. Just ask my mother. She never listened, never acted like she should. <laughs> she weeps in the hallway, and my fiancé embraces her. It'll be all right now, he says, and I wonder who exactly it will be all right for. Certainly not me, not when the doctor threads his stiff tubes into my veins and calls all my former suitors into the room. Leave me alone, I whisper, but the house turns cold and nobody seems to hear me. My mother wavers in the doorway, her ruddy cheeks streaked with tears as the men pin me to the mattress. One after another, right down the line, their starched shirts unbuttoned, sweat beating in the curve of their upper lips. They pump their blood into my body, filling me up with them. A transfusion, they call it, though I've got another word for it. Stop! I say, but with their faces flushed and eager, they're used to ignoring what I want. Six. Myself. For what it's worth, I don't believe this one. I won't believe it, no matter how many times they tell me I should have known better. If only she'd stayed at home, says my mother. If only she'd married sooner, says my best friend. If only she'd been a better patient, says the out-of-town doctor. If only she'd said yes to me instead, say all my suitors I denied. They're wrong. They have to be. With their poisoned blood in my veins, I'd never beg these men, or beg God to forgive me for what I haven't done. The last breath draining out of me, I'd never hate myself for giggling too loudly in the garden, or the parlor, or the streets. For tossing my head back and letting out a shriek of delight that could split the sky and decorum in two. And after I'm dead, I'd never curl up in the shadows of my tomb and weep silently to myself. Make believing all the ways I could have laced my corset a little tighter— kept my shoulders a little straighter, been the kind of girl who might have made my mother proud. I'd never blame myself for what wasn't my fault, just because they claim it's my burden to bear, just because the world isn't made for silly dreamers like me. But like I said, I wouldn't do any of that, so let's not even talk about it.
7. The Faceless Mob They come at night when my crypt is quiet. It might only be one or two of the men, or maybe it's all of them. The doctor I don't know, the suitors I spurned, the fiancé I never wanted. You might be there too, a shapeless form in the background, bleeding in with the rest, a torch in your hand and a sly grin on your face. What I do know, this should be a safe place for me. Resting in my own coffin shouldn't be so bad. I've always been a girl who wanted impossible things. Now I'm a corpse who wants only to be left alone. A fair request for the dead, but not something I'll be lucky enough to get. The first scratching at the mausoleum door, and what's left of my heart quickens in my chest. It could be Mina, come at last to pay her respects. She's the only one I'm willing to see. Her hand is strong enough to slip the slab from my coffin, to free me from this place. We could still run away. I whisper to the dark, but then their gruff voices seep through the stone, and all that I know is it isn't her. One other thing I know. I haven't left this tomb. Nestled here in an ivory lace dress meant for a wedding altar, I've been quiet and calm and nothing like you. I haven't gone into the night and indulged this hunger that writhes inside my belly, the dubious gift you've given me. Yet the truth means nothing to these men. They thrive on gossip and they'll use their lies, sharp as dog rose thorns against me. They'll claim I've done terrible things because you can't let a corpse rest. You have to make sure the corpse learned her lesson. We need to help, Miss Lucy, they agree. All for my own good, of course. All to save me from myself. When they write about this in their journals, they'll say they looked me in the eye when they finished me. They'll say they banded together with wreaths of garlic flowers and words of comfort for the dead. They'll say they were brave men who had no other choice. These are just more of their lies. There's a reason I can't be sure which of them is here. They never dare to show their faces. Instead, packing fodder waist-high around my tomb, they barricade me in and set me alight from the outside. I'm already dead, but that doesn't matter. These men know all the best ways to hurt me. As the fire rages, they linger outside and listen to my scream. My skin puddling in my coffin. My brittle bones and brittle heart reduced to ash. I never thought dying twice could be so painful. Eight. No one at all. How many ways can you murder a girl? Too many to count, I suppose. But it makes no difference in the end. Because in a countryside filled with monsters, there isn't time to mourn the ones like me forever. 
and it turns out you're an expert in forever. In the legends about you, no one ever seems to question how you can always rise again. It's easy to believe that a man of power could conjure himself from dust. But nobody expects the girls you destroy to do the same. We're meant to be lost. Death is our birthright and our destiny. Only maybe it's not mine. Maybe more than a phoenix. More than just men like you can surface from the embers. It could be that nobody murdered me after all, because maybe I'm still here. The sun rises and falls again from the sky. And something happens in the mausoleum darkness. A spark that shouldn't be. One that you and the other men could never imagine. The burnt slab shifts off my tomb, shattering on the ground. And one fragment at a time, I piece myself back together. A patchwork monster of a girl. Hair like charred straw. Colorless marrow that's soft yet stronger than infinity. The fire in my crypt scorched my flesh, but it burned away my fear, too. All that's left of me now are these dreams of something else. Something better. I won't be a conquest or a footnote or an afterthought, and I won't be the one who's forgotten. Fresh skin stretches taut over my splintered bones, and I part my new lips and exhale a scream meant only for you. Tucked inside your Scots pine coffin, you hear me. My voice from afar boiling in your ears like the blood you crave. For once, regret stirs in you, because you finally realize you can make a mistake too. You can choose a girl who simply won't die. When you flee back to your castle in the mountains, the men think you're running from them, but I know the truth. You're really running from me. They'll run too when their time comes. Since I don't know which of them visited my crypt, it only seems fair to blame them all. For now, though, you'll have to do. At the downtown station, I climb aboard an evening train headed east. None of the other bustling passengers notice me. In this new body, I'm like a ghost. Here and not here. A specter that can be seen only when I say so. The world has wanted to ignore me, and I'll use that now to my advantage. In my solitary compartment, I close my eyes and envision you, the way you run home like an admonished child, and how quickly the men catch up with you. They outnumber you by a mile, but even once you're at their mercy, they won't understand what to do. Those clumsy hands of theirs, gripping carved wood and crucifixes, fingers trembling all the while. They might turn you to cinders, but they'll also leave you there to resurrect yourself. Soon there will be another trip across the sea, and another dreamy girl in a goblin market who doesn't know to be afraid. Except not this time.
As the locomotive engine chugs across the mountains carrying me to you, I'll make sure of that much. Let the girls go on dreaming. Let them wander city streets that aren't so fearsome without you waiting there in the darkness. You once knew my secrets. Now I know yours. Far away, in a castle that reeks of withered bellflowers and heartache, you'll rise from the ash, and I'll be there to greet you. With my new bones and new skin, and this thirst I'll never slake. We'll sway together in the ruins you've created, dancing to music only we can hear. And with a hand on your shoulder, and another through your heart, I promise you that I'll never let you go. That was Gwendolyn Keist's The Eight People Who Murdered Me, excerpt from Lucy Westenra's diary, as read by Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a writer and voice actor. She performs for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts, such as the No Sleep Podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, and right here at Tales to Terrify. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at nicoledoolin.com. Thank you, Nicole. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Our second Stoker-nominated story comes from Tim Wagoner. Tim Wagner has published close to 40 novels and three collections of short stories. He writes original dark fantasy and horror, as well as media tie-ins, and his articles on writing have appeared in numerous publications. In 2017, he received the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Long Fiction. He's been a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award, and the Scribe Award, and his fiction has received numerous honorable mentions in volumes of Best Horror of the Year. He's also a full-time tenured professor who teaches creative writing and composition at Sinclair College in Dayton, Ohio. 
Listen with me, children of the night, to Tim Wagner's Stoker-nominated A Touch of Madness, first published in the Pulp Horror Book of Phobias from Lycan Valley Press, May 2019. Christina Lawson sat at a corner table in a small cafe, coffee sitting in front of her, gloved hands tucked beneath her legs. Folk pop music played over the cafe's sound system in a vain attempt to give the place a relaxing atmosphere, but it was filled with so many people. Ordering at the counter, sitting and talking to one another, working behind the counter and operating various whirring, whooshing, or grinding machines, and the air thrummed with tension. She glanced around at the other customers, a couple sitting at a table, each involved in whatever was displayed on their phone screens instead of looking at each other, a father sitting with his twin daughters, who were five at the most and dressed in superhero outfits complete with capes, one green, one red, sipping juice boxes while their dad drank his coffee, a pair of middle-aged women in blue medical smocks talking over coffee and pastries after a long hospital shift, and a dozen more, including the staff behind the counter. All of them appeared completely normal, completely sane, but she knew better than most that appearances didn't mean shit. Anything could be happening behind their eyes, their thoughts a chaotic maelstrom of wild imperceptions and barely restrained homicidal impulses. Any one of them could be on the verge of succumbing to the lunacy raging inside, and then all hell would break loose. Pam would have told her she was being paranoid, and maybe so, but she'd seen it happen before. And if it had happened once, it could happen again. She wasn't sure why Pam had asked to have their session in a public place like this instead of her office. No doubt she thought there was a good reason for it, maybe some new type of therapy that she wanted to try. But Christina wasn't comfortable around people, especially this many. She looked down on the tabletop to avoid meeting anyone's gaze. She flexed her hands, felt them move under her legs, was reassured to know they were still protected. She made no move to touch the coffee in front of her. Didn't want it, didn't really like coffee much. She'd only bought it so she wouldn't look any stranger sitting here than she already did. Pam rushed into the shop then, blonde hair in a frizzy mess, makeup slightly askew, as if she'd applied it too fast. She looked around, saw Christina, smiled, and hurried over to her table. Sorry I'm late, she said. Do you mind if I order something before we get started? Christina did mind. She wanted to get whatever this was over as soon as possible. But she shook her head. Pam smiled again, then headed to the counter. There was a line, and Christina watched her stand there for several moments until it was her time to order. She trusted Pam, as much as she trusted anyone, that is. She'd seen a number of therapists over the years, most of whom had treated her as if she was the crazy one. Pam had been the first to treat her as if she was a person, instead of merely a psychologically fascinating puzzle to be solved, a shattered porcelain doll whose pieces needed to be put back together. 
She'd been seeing Pam for almost two years, and she couldn't deny they'd made progress together. Two years ago, she never could have come into a place like this by herself, order a drink, sit, and wait for someone. But here she was, and if she wasn't comfortable, so what? She was here. Pam returned to the table, carrying a large cup that most likely contained a latte with an extra shot of espresso. During one of their earliest sessions, she'd mentioned it was her favorite drink. She sat down opposite Christina and took a long sip before setting the cup down on the table. Normally, Pam began their sessions with some chit-chat. How have you been since we last talked? Anything new going on with you? But not this time. I'm sure you're wondering why I asked you to meet me here today. Christina smiled. The thought had crossed my mind. I'd like to try something different today, and I thought this would be a good place for it. Called it, Christina thought. Were you late on purpose in order to give me a chance to handle being by myself? Pam took another sip of her latte. The thought had crossed my mind, she said, and despite herself, Christina laughed. So what was it like? Pam asked. Tolerable. Although if you'd been much later, I'd probably have left. Good thing I wasn't any later then, huh? Pam's expression grew more serious, became what Christina thought of as her doctor face, and she knew their session was about to start in earnest. How are you feeling about the TV show this week? Christina grimaced. Okay, I guess. The bastards have stopped trying to contact me, so that's a relief. The producers of a lurid true crime TV show called Unnatural Acts were doing a segment on Christina's mom. For a month, they'd bugged her nonstop, desperate to get an on-camera interview with her, but she'd ignored them and they'd finally decided to go ahead without her participation. She'd had enough media attention over the last decade to last her a lifetime. News reporters who fought to be the one to interview her first. True crime authors who wanted to write books about what had happened. One was eventually published, Blood on Campus, and it had become a modest success. She hated the attention, hated how it always brought the memories of that awful day back full force. For the last ten years, she'd hoped people would forget and find a new atrocity to be fascinated by. But it hadn't happened yet, and she was starting to wonder if it ever would. That's what I wanted to talk to you about, Pam said, then added, kind of. Oh God, don't tell me the producers hired you to be a consultant. Pam's eyes widened in surprise, and then she laughed. No, and even if they'd asked me, I'd turn them down. It would violate doctor-patient confidentiality. Plus, it would be a total dick move. Christina relaxed. The thought of Pam betraying her like that was too awful to think about. So what do you want to talk about? She felt her defenses going up. She didn't like to remember that day, let alone talk about it. But Pam had done a lot to help her, so she'd go along with whatever she wanted to do. To a point. Pam took another sip of her latte, a long one, as if fortifying herself for what came next. We've talked about that day before, she began. Several times. And during those conversations, I never questioned the truth of what you told me, never disputed the reality of any of it. Christina nodded cautiously. She didn't like where this seemed to be going. 
her other therapists had questioned, had tried to convince her that it hadn't happened, or at least that it hadn't happened the way she remembered. One of the things she liked about Pam is that she'd never done that. But maybe she'd just been waiting for what she thought was the right time to bring up the subject. I went to the university yesterday. An ice-cold hand gripped Christina's heart, and she began trembling. Pam went on, speaking faster as if hoping to get everything out before she freaked. I'd never been there. I went to college in Chicago before my husband and I moved to Ohio. It's a beautiful campus, lovely old buildings, lots of grass and trees, very different from the downtown campus I attended. The Science Center's not there anymore. They tore it down years ago and planted trees there. They put up a remembrance plaque, too. I think you might find it healing to see it. Christina trembled harder now, and her mouth and throat felt dry as desert sand. She didn't want to reply, but if she tried, her words would have likely come out in a hoarse croak. Pam continued. I looked for the fountain, but I couldn't find it at first. I thought maybe it had been torn down, too. But I found it eventually, and it was peaceful and relaxing, just as you described it. She paused and then added, I took some pictures with my phone. Sudden nausea erupted in Christina's gut, and her vision blurred. She wanted to jump up from her chair and run toward the exit, but she feared that if she tried, she'd pass out before she made it halfway. I'd like to show them to you, if that's okay. She wanted to shake her head violently, but she was unable to move. Taking her silence for assent, Pam removed her phone from her purse, brought a picture up on the screen, and then held it out for Christina to see. She scrolled through a series of images, and although Christina wanted to look away, wanted it more than she wanted her next breath, she watched the pictures go by, one after the other. Christina saw the statue on a hot afternoon in late July when she was 13 years old. She was supposed to be attending the second morning of a week-long summer science workshop for middle school kids run by the university. But after her mom dropped her off in front of the science center and drove away in her Lexus, she decided to wander the campus instead. She hated science and never got good grades in it, which was the reason her overachieving parents had insisted on signing her up for the workshop. But as much as she hated science, she hated being told what to do even more. Rules, regulations, do this, don't do that, be a good girl, don't be a bad girl. Why couldn't everyone just leave her alone to do what she wanted, when she wanted? Her parents, teachers, all her life people had told her what to do, and she was sick of it. The only rules she was interested in following were her own. Her parents might have enrolled her in the workshop and paid for it, but they couldn't make her attend if she didn't want to. Yesterday had been so boring. All they'd done was make inventions out of cardboard, tape, glue, plastic straws, popsicle sticks, and other odds and ends. More arts and crafts than science. Kid stuff. Today she planned to skip out and kick around campus for a couple hours until it was time for mom to pick her up. And then she'd meet her back in front of the science center and feed her some bullshit about what the instructors had the kids do today. Her parents were smart. Mom was a lawyer, dad a pediatrician. But they were so busy they only ever paid partial attention to what she did. Lying to them was almost embarrassingly easy. This wasn't her first time at Ash Creek University. 
Her parents were both alums and had been dragging her to campus concerts, art shows, and theater productions since before she could walk. But in all those visits, dozens of them, she'd never gotten the chance to explore the place. High time she rectified that, she decided. But after a half hour of walking around in the sun and heat, she was not only bored, but miserable. She supposed the campus was pretty enough. Red brick buildings, well-landscaped grounds, large trees. But there wasn't anything to do. And because it was summer, there weren't many people around, which made the place feel empty and lonely. She did like the fact that no one paid any attention to her. The few people she passed, students, professors, didn't so much as glance at her, as if a 13-year-old walking around campus by herself was completely normal. It made her feel very grown up. But she'd been walking nonstop since her mother left, and she was tired and sweaty. And while the campus was pleasant for the most part, there was a lot of construction going on, parking lots being resurfaced, buildings being remodeled, and that meant noise. Machines running, tools striking metal and concrete, people shouting to each other as they worked. She wanted someplace quiet where she could sit in peace for a bit, preferably in the shade. She was on the verge of saying to hell with it and going back to the science center and attending the stupid workshop when she saw the red dumpster. It contained odds and ends from campus construction, chunks of broken concrete, lengths of discarded wood. It was in no way remarkable. She'd seen a dozen like it during her self-guided tour of the campus so far. But what was remarkable was what lay behind it. She almost missed it, so completely did the dumpster block the view. But there was a tiny sliver of space between the side of the dumpster and an old oak tree, and through it she caught a glimpse of what looked like a fountain. Intrigued, she slipped past the dumpster and found herself standing at the entrance to a... Well, she wasn't sure what it was exactly. A place for people to sit, relax, and think, she supposed. A stone fountain sat atop the third level of a daze, a curving half-circle of stone wall behind it, with an arched open doorway in the middle. Wooden benches rested on either side of the doorway, where people could sit and watch the fountain and listen to the gentle trickle of water. The water bubbled up from the center of a large, round stone surface to flow over the edges and into a pool beneath. The water emerged from the edge of the dais in a small waterfall surrounded by large stones placed to look like a natural formation. Trees surrounded the fountain, separating it from the rest of the world, making it seem as if it were a place out of a fairy tale, a secluded magical setting that only a lucky few ever found. There was shade here, along with the pleasant breeze, and the sound of the gently rustling tree leaves, combined with the running water, soothed Christina. She knew where she'd be spending the rest of the time until her mother came to get her. Then she looked to the left of the fountain and saw the statue. Her parents had both been raised Catholic, but they weren't religious. Ash Creek University was a private Catholic institution with a reputation for academic excellence, and that was the only reason her parents had come here for their undergraduate degrees. Christina sometimes wondered if they still considered themselves Catholic, culturally if not spiritually. They took her to Christmas Eve and Easter Mass every year, to broaden her horizons, they said. And on the way home, they'd give her a speech about how religion was nothing more than a way to instill moral values in its followers by using metaphor and symbolism, and it wasn't to be taken literally. 
Thanks to her broadened horizons, she recognized the statue as the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary stood atop a granite pedestal, bare feet sticking out from beneath the hem of her robe. She held her hands out before her, fingers steepled as if praying, her hood-covered head bowed. There was no expression on her face. Her eyes were closed and her mouth was little more than a line with only a suggestion of lips. But the detail that stood out the most to Christina was what looked like a thick reptilian tail protruding from the back of her robe and curling around her left foot. She frowned upon seeing the tail, for that's what it had to be, couldn't be anything else. She was no expert on Catholic theology, but she felt confident that Mary wasn't supposed to have a lizard's tail. There was something written on the granite base the statue stood on, and she walked over to read it. It was a single word. Pandemonia. And beneath that, in smaller letters, a quote. If there is a universal mind, who says it has to be sane? Charles Fort. Was this some kind of weird piece of art, or maybe a joke of some kind? And then the tail twitched. Just the tip, and it happened so fast she wasn't sure she'd really seen it. She looked up at the statue's face, and ice-cold fear hit her when she saw its eyes were now open. They weren't the same gray-white as the rest of the statue, though. Instead, they were a glossy obsidian, and while she could read nothing within their empty blackness, she could feel the weight of the statue's gaze upon her. You do well to shun the false god of science, child. The statue's thin mouth didn't move. Its voice, cold as midnight and dry as ancient bone, echoed in her mind. Science pretends there is order to existence, that for every question there is an answer. This is a lie. Existence is random and meaningless. And that is glorious. The statue bent toward Christina and stretched its hands towards her. At first she was so terrified she couldn't move, could only stand and watch the stone fingers draw closer. But then her survival instincts kicked in, and she threw off her paralysis and turned to run. But before she could take more than a single step, the stone tail lashed out and encircled her waist, stopping her. She pulled and tugged, but she couldn't break free of the tail's stone coils. The statue closed its hard fingers around Christina's right wrist and held her hand steady as its lips parted and a pearl of thick, dark liquid emerged. It fell onto the back of her hand and sat there for a moment, burning cold on her skin before flattening against her flesh and slowly disappearing into her body. She felt no different, but a shudder raced through her just the same. The soothing rhythm of the fountain ceased, and the sudden silence drew Christina's attention. She glanced over to see the water had stopped flowing, and an instant later blood welled up from the center of the round stone, crimson and thick. It oozed across the surface, overflowing the stone's edges, falling in ropey threads into the pool below, before finally emerging as a red waterfall. She looked into the statue's obsidian eyes, its face only a few inches from her own now. Go forth and share the gift I have bestowed upon you, my daughter. Free them. Free them all. 
Christina had no memory of the statue releasing her, no memory of beginning to run. One moment she was standing there, trapped in the statue's embrace, staring into its obsidian eyes, and the next she was running full out, heart pounding, lungs heaving, sweat pouring off her. She had no destination in mind, wasn't capable of anything approaching rational thought at that moment. Her body operated on autopilot, returning her to the place she'd started from, the science center. She was relieved to see her mom's Lexus parked in front of the building, and she ran straight to it, only partially aware of the tears streaming down her face. She ran to the driver's side window and began pounding on it to get her mother's attention. It was several moments before she realized the car was empty. There you are! Christina stopped pounding on the window and looked up to see her mother exiting the science building, her face a mask of anger. She continued chiding Christina as she walked toward her. I was in a meeting with a client when the workshop director called to ask me why you weren't present today. I hauled ass down here, grinding my teeth to nubs the whole way. Why can't you, for once in your life, do what you're supposed to? She trailed off as she reached Christina, her expression softening. Are you okay, honey? Why are you crying? Did something happen? Before Christina could respond, her mom took hold of her hands and gave them a reassuring squeeze. The instant their flesh came in contact, her mother stiffened, and her eyes widened in shock. She began shaking her head, as if trying to deny something only she could see. She paled, an expression of absolute horror coming onto her face. But instead of turning away from the unseen whatever it was, she continued looking, and slowly her features slackened and her expression became placid. She remained like that for several heartbeats, still holding on to Christina's hands, and then she spoke in a calm, almost toneless voice. Thank you, I understand now. She looked at Christina, and in the same flat voice said, I'm going to go tell the director I found you and you're safe. I'll be back in a minute. She released Christina's hands, turned, and walked back into the building. Christina's tears subsided to a trickle, but she was no longer aware of them. She stared at the glass door that was the entrance to the science building, unable to escape the feeling that something was terribly wrong. For a moment she forgot about the statue or rather she forced herself not to think of it. When Mom got mad, really mad, she stayed that way for a while, sometimes hours. Christina had never seen her calm down so quickly and completely. It was like a switch had been thrown inside her, shutting off all her emotions. It was beyond weird. And that's when the screaming began. It was muffled, but the sound was unmistakable. It came from somewhere inside the building, and when she looked toward the second floor, where the science workshop was taking place, she saw a smallish, child-sized hand slap the window from the inside. The hand was covered with blood and left a red smear on the glass as it slid away. Her own paralysis was broken by the sight, and she ran into the building and went up the stairs, taking them two and three at a time. The screams grew louder and fewer the closer she got to the second floor and they were punctuated by moans of pain. She slowed as she approached the classroom where the workshop was held. She didn't want to go in, 
didn't want to see whatever waited for her, but she had to. Her mother was in there. The door was open, and by the time she reached it, the sounds had stopped. No more screams, no more moans, just silence. She stepped inside, not far, only a foot or so. The room was set up the same way as it had been yesterday. Ten circular tables with chairs around them, materials for students to use in constructing their projects in the middle. It was more like art class than science, which had been one of the reasons she'd found it so boring. But what she saw now wasn't boring. Far from it. Bodies were scattered around the classroom. Mostly kids her age, but there were a couple adults as well. Some lay on the floor in various positions, while others had collapsed into chairs or onto desks. They had sustained numerous cuts and blood was everywhere, on their clothes, on the desks and chairs, on the floor and walls. And all the corpses, around twenty in total, appeared to have died the same way, by having their throats cut. Christina's mother stood in the middle of the room, holding a pair of box cutters, her clothes, hands, and face covered in blood. She turned to face Christina and smiled, her teeth a startling patch of white in her otherwise crimson face. Thank you for helping me to see how things really are, sweetie. Thank you for setting me free. She raised both box cutters and pressed the tips of the razors to the small hollow at the base of her neck. And then, with a pair of vicious outward swipes, she laid open her throat. Blood fountained from the wound to join that which already covered her. If she felt any pain, her face didn't show it. Her smile widened and her eyes seemed to almost glow. Christina didn't know the word beatific but if she had, that's how she would have described her mother's expression. Her mother stood like that for a time, but eventually the box cutters slipped from her hands and thunked to the floor. A moment later, she joined them, collapsing and staring up at the ceiling with wide, unblinking eyes. Her smile, however, remained in place. And then it was Christina's turn to scream. Christina saw the fountain, the stone wall behind it, the rocks in front of it, the trees surrounding it. But there was one thing she didn't see on the phone screen. The statue. I checked with the campus groundskeeper's office, Pam said. And they told me that not only isn't there a statue next to the fountain, there never has been in the university's 122-year history. She closed the phone's photo app and replaced the device in her purse. There was no statue, Christina. In your mind, yes, but not in the physical world. It didn't infect you with... She frowned as if unsure how to put it. With its madness. And you didn't pass it on to your mother when she grabbed your hands. You aren't responsible for what she did, and you never were. All of Christina's therapists had argued that the statue wasn't real, at least not the way she'd perceived it. But none had gone so far as to visit the campus and take pictures, let alone check to see if the statue had ever existed. A part of her that was still 13, and maybe always would be, wanted to shout at Pam, accuse her of lying. But the rest of her, 
the woman she'd become in the last ten years, wanted to believe it. What a comfort it would be to believe that her mother had done what she'd done for some other reason than because she'd touched her daughter's hand and come in contact with a contagion that pandemonia had infected her with. I know how to prove that you had nothing to do with what happened, Pam said. But you'll have to trust me. Do you trust me, Christina? She hesitated, but then she managed a single nod. Good. Put your hands on the table. Christina stared at her, not quite sure she'd heard her correctly. You told me that you've worn gloves every day for the last ten years, that you won't even take the right one off to bathe, all because you don't want to risk infecting anyone else. Yes. She'd been extremely, no, obsessively careful over the years. But if there was no statue, there's no infection to pass on. And that means you can touch someone without anything bad happening. So you can touch me. Pam put her left hand on the table, palm up. Christina looked at Pam's hand, head swimming with vertigo. What's more likely to be real? That some thing chose you to spread some kind of psychological plague? Or that your mind made up that incident so you wouldn't have to believe your mother was responsible for killing all those people? Christina knew which of the choices was the most logical, but that didn't necessarily make it the correct one. Still, she took a deep breath and slid her hands out from under her legs. She wanted to get better, she truly did, and she recognized that this would be a huge step toward making that possible. She removed her left glove, the one that she didn't really need to wear, and placed it on the table. And then, after another moment's hesitation, she removed the right and placed it next to the left. The air felt cold on the exposed skin of her hands, but it felt stimulating, too. Then slowly, fighting every instinct inside her that screamed she shouldn't be doing this, she lowered her right hand onto Pam's, and for the first time since that day, she touched another human being. Pam curled her fingers upward to grasp hers, and tears of joy welled in Christina's eyes. Pam had been right. The statue hadn't been real. It hadn't. Pam's eyes glazed over, and her features went slack. She pulled her hand away from Christina's. No, Christina whispered. No, 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 no. Pam didn't respond. Instead, she rose from the table and walked toward the counter. But instead of stopping in front of the register, she continued on, stepping behind the counter where the staff were working. They looked at her for a moment, as if uncertain what to say or do. Then one of them, a skinny twenty-something with a goatee and a man bun, stepped forward to block her way. I'm sorry, ma'am, but you're not... Pam reached down, and from somewhere, Christina couldn't see from the table, grabbed hold of a knife. It was long and sharp, with a black plastic handle one of the implements the staff used when preparing sandwiches or slicing bagels. Manbun started to raise his hands, as if he thought he could ward off Pam by gesture alone. But before he could complete the gesture, Pam swiped the blade across his throat in a single swift motion. Flesh parted, blood spurted, and Manbun clapped his hands to his throat in a ridiculously ineffective attempt to stop the bleeding. People started screaming then, 
and while some stared at Pam, dumbfounded, the majority bolted for the door. Too many tried to go through it at the same time, but the crowd behind them pushed until the jam was broken and everyone could get through. Pam turned away from the bleeding man, whose mouth kept opening and closing like a fish as he attempted to speak, but all he managed were wet clicking sounds, and then his eyes rolled white and he slumped to the floor. His co-workers gaped at his prone form for a second, but when Pam came out from around the counter and started back toward Christina, they saw the opportunity to get the hell out of there, and they lost no time in doing so, fleeing into the street after their departed customers. By the time Pam returned to the table, still gripping the knife, blade slick with blood, the cafe was empty except for the two of them. Christina wanted to look away from Pam's gaze, wanted to close her eyes and wait to feel the knife's edge kiss on her own throat. But she forced herself to meet her therapist's eyes. She half expected to see they had become a glossy obsidian, but they looked the same as they always had, save for the complete and total lack of anything resembling human emotion within them. You were given a gift. Pam spoke in a toneless voice that reminded Christina of the way her mother had spoken before going inside the science building. And you've wasted it. Moving so swiftly that Christina hardly saw her move, Pam grabbed hold of her right wrist and pressed her hand to the table. Time to return what you've squandered. She pressed the sharp edge of the knife against the tender skin of Christina's wrist. Christina impressed herself by not feeling afraid. It would be a relief to be rid of Pandemonia's dark gift. And if she bled to death after Pam performed her impromptu amputation, what of it? At least she would have kept her sanity at the end. She gritted her teeth to steel herself for the pain to come and curled her right hand into a fist, the tips of her fingers pressing hard into her palm. Ten years she had avoided touching herself with her right hand, terrified of what might happen. Now she knew. More, she understood. Pam kept the blade pressed against her skin for another moment, but then she pulled it away and released her grip on Christina's wrist. Face still expressionless, eyes still dead, she handed the knife to Christina, and then stood there, waiting. Christina examined the blade, turning it this way and that to see how the light played across the metal. The barista's blood still clung to the knife, and she brought the blade to her mouth and licked it clean. She cut her own tongue in the process, but she didn't care. The pain was exquisite, and the blood she swallowed, hers mixed with his, tasted sweeter than any wine. She looked at Pam. Thanks for everything, she said, and then rammed the blade into the woman's chest, expertly slipping it between a pair of ribs and into her heart. The non-expression on Pam's face didn't change as she slipped free of the blade and collapsed to the floor, dead. Instead of licking the knife this time, Christina wiped it on her cheeks, smearing them with Pam's blood. Many times over the years, she tried to imagine what it had been like inside her mother's mind after she experienced the dark touch. The closest she could come to was to imagine Mom's skull as a hive filled with angry, buzzing bees furiously trying to sting one another to death. She was surprised to discover she hadn't been far off the mark. The sound, one of absolute and total disorder, was magnificent. It was the song of discord and upheaval, of malady and torment, of decay and dissolution, 
and she couldn't wait to share it with the world. She heard Pandemonia's voice one last time. That's my girl. Christina tossed the knife onto Pam's lifeless body and started walking toward the door. She flexed the fingers of her right hand as if limbering them up. She had work to do, important work, and she couldn't wait to get started. That was Tim Wagner's A Touch of Madness, as read by Amy Pownessa. Amy Pownessa has been the producer and host of The Bloodlust, a horror movie review podcast since 2014. She has narrated stories for Knife Point Horror, Those Snowy Nights, and The Alexandria Archives. She's thrilled to narrate for Tales to Terrify, especially because she credits the podcast with reigniting her love of horror fiction. Amy lives just outside of Detroit with her lovely wife, two vicious 12-year-old attack dogs, and a fluffy orange cat who dominates them all. Thank you, Amy. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. Ratings and reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They help us expose more victims, I mean listeners, to our dark influence. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we unearth fresh horrors with more Tales to Terrify. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 